Psalm 30, a song for the dedication of the Temple of David. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. O Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What gain is there in my destruction? Am I going down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Well, it's good to see you all here today. I'm just going to move this microphone over here, if that's all right. And am I on? I think we're on. Great. Well, um, Ken was a little accurate, but not completely, in terms of talking about how uh, long ago it was that we first met. I first met Ken at some uh, Baptist youth convention thing in Edmonton, I don't know, maybe 20 or more years ago, and he had a little more hair then. He used to be kind of a long-haired, guitar-strumming youth pastor back then. So that's when we first met. In fact, um, I go back so far with your church here, at least of knowing about you, when you had a guy named Glenn who was your youth pastor. He and I were youth pastors together in the city way back then. Then I met Ken, and then Ken showed up, and then we started working together on these preaching workshops. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, but Ken has been a real help to that process in the city. And through Ken, your church has really impacted dozens and dozens of pastors all over the southern Alberta area who have come to our workshops over the last 12 or 13 years. And it's been a great joy to get to know Ken and to uh, serve alongside of him in that capacity. I am now representing the Charles Simeon Trust. This is a ministry that was born out of Wheaton, Illinois, at a church called College Church. And a man named Kent Hughes was the pastor. And he began putting on every year a preaching workshop, and I went down to that. And I tried to bring my friends from Calgary down to it, and I could only get one guy, and so I asked them, what would you think if we opened up a franchise here in Calgary? And I was one of three pastors around North America that made that request. And so these workshops began uh, branching out around North America, and then over time, they skipped overseas. And so we had about 30 going in North America and then when they went overseas and really started to expand a lot, uh, the capacity of the current staff just was not there to manage that. So I had been the pastor at Strathmore Alliance Church for about 17, 18 years, and they invited me to join the staff as the director of the international side of this workshop arm. And so that's what I'm doing now, just getting started. Um, in fact, we're not even fully incorporated yet. We're doing the whole process of getting a Canadian office open with the charitable status and all of that, all that that involves. 
and we're working on that these days. However, we are rolling. I've been to India twice in the last few months. Mexico was in Brazil a couple weeks ago. We've got lots of workshops happening in those places and also in Cuba. We're looking at Pakistan potentially, France, um, maybe Japan. Uh, hopefully we'd like to get into China. But the whole world is opening up to us. And there are pastors all over the world. In fact, everywhere you go, you ask any missionary you meet, say, what's one of the biggest needs out there? And almost every time they will say, leadership training. Training our pastors in word ministry is a huge area for the growth of the gospel worldwide. And so I have the privilege now of entering into that ministry full time. And uh, our next trip will be back to India in September. We have a couple workshops over there. We're just in negotiations with a guy in Japan. And I couldn't even begin to tell you. Now what we do overseas is we do a two-day workshop. In North America, we do, a, do them in two and a half days. But we do three things. We have principles of exposition. These are our instructions where we explain what a pastor needs to believe and what he needs to do to effectively preach the word. So the instructions. Then we give expositions, and these are designed to encourage the pastors. You know, pastors need to be encouraged when they get together. This is such a critical area. In fact, I would just tell you that a big part of a workshop isn't so much what is said. I mean, it is. It's obviously what is taught from the front. But it's also the gathering together that is so important. So Ken and I, we have had over the years very similar jobs and frankly very similar churches. And when we get together, we can really encourage each other in the work. And so we want to encourage our pastors by having them sit under biblical expositions when we get together. And then the third area is the small groups. So a couple of weeks before a pastor comes to one of our workshops, he is given a couple of assignments, passages, and a worksheet to work through. And then he works through that and he brings it and then he shares it with his peers. And then a discussion happens. It's pretty rare for pastors to go through peer review of their work, but that's where the gold is. That's where the growth takes place. It's wonderful for you when you're leaving church to tell your pastor that was a wonderful sermon, but sometimes it wasn't that wonderful of a sermon. And maybe he needs his friends to gather around him and say, you know, brother, you could do a little better here. And so that's how we grow. So those three areas, that's what we emphasize. We want to take the word of God with the spirit of God to do the work of God among the people of God for the glory of God. That's why we want to gather from week to week. And that's why I am so thrilled to be here with you today to share the word. We're going to look at Psalm 30 in just a minute, but I want to talk to you for a second as we, as we get going just about what I perceive is going on and why I think this particular psalm can maybe help address some of those things that are going on in our world today. Let's take a moment and trust the Lord for his presence and his spirit to guide us and to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this church family, a beautiful body of Christ situated here in your city for your glory. I thank you for the testimony of this church over decades, for the generosity, for the ministry that has gone out of here, for the funds that have gone out from here, for the people who have gone out from here. And I pray that this church would continue to be a sending church, continue to be a place of, of generosity of spirit and of heart. And I pray that right now you would speak to us, that you would fill us up with your spirit, that you would convey your word to us, and that you would change us and you would mold us and you would shape us into the people that you want us to be. 
We're trusting you for this. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I sense that I've been noticing lately a certain kind of angst among believers in our area here. A certain kind of turmoil, and I think that some of it has to do with, I'll call, I'll say this, expanding sexual realities in the United States. I just think that what we're seeing happen down there in a number of kind of bizarre and strange things have got us kind of stirred up here. One of my daughters was speculating. She was wondering, why is it that we're so stirred up now when in Canada we've had similar kinds of decisions made for years? But all of a sudden, we, we feel all stirred up. And I think I can say this with confidence that some of you are spending too much time on Facebook. And that is helping to create this kind of angst within you because you're seeing things. Oh, I can't believe that happened. And then maybe you start typing something in response. I don't know. Some of us believe too much of what we see there. But as I got to thinking about this passage of Scripture and this day and age in which we live and this particular moment we would have together, I wrote down three things. They're possibly related. I think they're distinct, but they're maybe related. And they all, I think, serve to cause us this certain kind of angst that I'm talking about. One, I just alluded to it, is discouragement with modern public life. Maybe the wrong people got elected. Maybe the wrong decisions were made by uh, some government official. I don't know. But there's this discouragement that we have with modern public life. Secondly, I would mention a dissatisfaction with our relative wealth. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm not wealthy. Well, I've just got to tell you that everybody in this room likely is in the top 2% of wealth in the world. I was just in Rio de Janeiro, which is a fabulous city, uh, very famous, beautiful tourist attraction. The Olympics are going there. There's going to be a real shine put on Rio de Janeiro in the next year or so. But the slums and the crime and the chaos of that city is amazing. Again, the networks will, will put a shine on that for the Olympics and dress it all up. But everywhere you go, I was in a Radisson Hotel in New Delhi, India. A very nice hotel by our standards. You walk out the front gate, you walk 100 feet, not even 100 feet, 20 feet, and you see poverty that you wouldn't, wouldn't even believe all around. And this is the story all over the world. And so here in North America, we have relative wealth. And yet, we're so dissatisfied. It seems empty to us somehow. The more we get, the unhappier we seem to be. So I would mention those two things, this discouragement over modern public life, this dissatisfaction with our relative wealth. And then the third thing, and I think this is big, and I've sensed this as a pastor over the last five or six years. To me, it seems kind of new. Maybe it's not new, but it's loneliness. So many people are so lonely. And the irony is that the more connected we think we are through social media, the more lonely we feel. Just a classic example, I used to get a phone call from my mother on my birthday every year. Now she sends me a little thing on Facebook, happy birthday, son. We're not more connected than we used to be. It was more connecting to have that phone call with my mom than to get a little note on Facebook. Sherry Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. The subtitle is Why We Expect More From Our Machines and Less From Each Other. That really captures the spirit of the age, doesn't it? One of the great lines in her book is that we'd rather text than talk. 
Now, I know we have a lot of young people here, and they, they won't remember this, but it used to be when you phoned somebody up on the telephone and you got their answering machine, you know, it was, it was this device that sat on the counter and it had a little tape in there. When you got the answering machine, you went, oh, no. I phoned my friend and I got the answering machine. I wanted to talk to my friend. The reality now is that when we phone somebody, often we're secretly hoping that it'll go straight to voicemail, right? Because we would rather text than talk. And while we have these machines that we think are connecting us, they're actually maybe helping the process of dividing us up. And we're lonely. And I think these are some of the things that are going on to create this modern malaise, this disappointment, this sense of unease that we have. And I think that this is a key thing. We need a vision for our eternal physical destiny that is seen through our current physical reality. Now, some of you might be wondering about that line. I'm going to say it again. We need a vision for our eternal physical destiny that is seen through our current physical reality. And you might be saying, wait a minute, shouldn't that be eternal heavenly destiny? Well, I chose the word physical in there for a point, and we'll get to that. We'll go there. Well, I want to talk about Psalm 30 because I think Psalm 30 helps us get there. Psalm 30 portrays a life-restoring God who takes care of his own. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Psalm chapter 30. And we're going to read a little bit. I appreciate that it was read before, but I want to just read little bits of it here as we, go, as we walk through it. So Psalm 30, verse 1. And here goes the psalmist. We think this was David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Well, here the psalmist is calling out praise for protection, for healing, and for restoration. We'll talk about those in just a second, but there's an amazing word picture that comes straight out of the original wording here. Lord, you have drawn me up. The wording there is literally, you have drawn me up like a bucket out of a deep well. It's very graphic. It's very helpful for us to think about. So think of yourself being down in this watery pit, and the Lord is drawing you up like this. You're in that bucket, and he pulls you up, and he pulls you up into the sunlight. He pulls you up out of that murk that's down there. That's the picture that the psalmist is relaying here. And good things have happened to him when he was drawn up. First of all, protection from enemies. He is so glad that he is not laying down and his enemies are, are, are pumping their fists over him in victory. The Lord has protected him from that fate. Now, Jesus said to love your enemies. Yes, but James in 4.4 said a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And the ultimate enemy that we face is Satan and his forces. And I think that we're being told here, hang in there. Don't worry. Ultimately, your enemies will not stand over you in victory. The Lord will protect you. Secondly, healing. He was restored. He was healed. Anyone in here sick? Anyone in here have health issues? I just read in your bulletin a whole paragraph of names of people who are struggling with some level of sickness. One of the issues that's facing us in this arena, and when I say us, I mean my extended family, my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, dear woman, 
to me, an important woman in my life, has been on a very slow 10-year steady slide into the depths of dementia. And I know that a number of you are dealing with family members like this. And it's very difficult. Over the years, we have just seen little bits of her mind peel away. Physically, she's still there. She's still a reasonably healthy person. But her mind just seems to be gone. And so this is a desperate issue for us. Where has she gone? <laughs> and when will, when will she come back to us? How will she be restored to us? Well, there's some questions there we don't quite know the answer to, but, but here in this text is confidence for me that one day she will be completely healthy again. Because it is a physical thing. It's a physical thing that's happening that's impacting her mind. And I know that some of you right now are probably not even listening to my story about my mother-in-law. You're thinking about your loved one who is in this condition, who is sharing a similar fate. And I want you to take comfort here that there is healing offered from the Lord. And what exactly this healing is like and when exactly it will occur, well, we don't always know. In my background, we believe in praying for the sick and trusting God for physical healing here in this life. But there is an ultimate healing that we're going to get to, that we're going to talk about. Well, notice the third good thing that happens here. There's protection from enemies. There's healing. There's also restoration. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. Now, in the Old Testament thinking, Sheol is the place of the dead. It's the underworld. It's that murky place down there somewhere where the dead go. Now, I don't think that David here is saying, I was literally dead and you brought me back to life. I think he was saying, I was so bad off. I was so sick. I was in such awful straits that it was like I was dead. And God has restored me. He's pulled me out of death and brought me back to life. What a great thing. And so look what he says in verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O ye his saints. And give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's why I called this hope for a new day. There's this sense that in the morning things will be better. Yes, we're, we're crying at night. Have you ever been in that situation where maybe it's, it's late at night and you're frustrated over some thing that's happened? You're upset. And maybe somebody comes along and says, let's sleep on this. That's often great advice. Let's sleep on this. And tomorrow we'll have a, a better perspective. Uh, the sun will shine. Not always on a July summer day will the sun be shining when you wake up in the morning. But the sun is out there. And we'll have a new perspective on a new day. And thank God that his anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. In the public arena when people talk about, well, I don't like this wrath of God, well, show them this. And again, from the Old Testament, Here's an Old Testament note on the grace of God. Yes, there is some anger, but just for a moment. But then there's a, there's a lifetime of hopefulness. There's a lifetime of joy, a lifetime of favor. Yes, it's dark and we're crying, but joy will come in the morning. Well, the psalmist now is going to take a moment to reflect back on his past. It's helpful to do. First of all, he remembers his pride. Look at verse 6. As for me and my prosperity, 
I said, I'll, I'll never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Here he is doing, doing what we often do. Things are going pretty well. Our finances are okay. Our health is pretty good. Everybody in the family is getting along. Do you ever have the tendency then just to drift back from the Lord a little bit? Just to drop your guard spiritually a little bit? Say, yeah, God, I got this. We're good. And that's what he did. He was prideful. He was complacent when he was feeling prosperous. By the way, that might be a partial answer to the malaise that we feel in our relative wealth and prosperity. When we're, things are going well, we just kind of drift a little bit. We sag a little bit, don't we? Well, the, David is honest enough to, to confess that. Yes, I got prideful. Yes, I got lazy in my complacency, and I drifted. But then he called out. He remembers calling out to the Lord. Look at verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. He remembers his prayers. He remembers the time that he called out to the Lord, and the Lord came through for him. I kind of like the way he put this. It's almost like a bargain with God. He's saying, Lord, if I die, who's going to praise you? You know, is the ground, is the dirt going to sing out its praise to you? There's going to be no one left to praise you. So it's almost, Lord, in your own self-interest to heal me because then there will be an added voice to your praises. It's an interesting way for him to think about this. But it's a great plea for mercy. It's a great cry of repentance. And then look what happens. Verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's a great word. Tears at night have been turned into joy in the light of a new day. Morning has been turned into dancing. Sad clothes have been taken off and new clothes of gladness have been given. I think that the significance of the promises in Psalm 30 are given in the context of what we call the Hebrew covenant, God's promise. You know that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And central to this promise covenant was life, and death was the opposite of that promise. But continuity in the life of this promise depended on being faithful to God, a life characterized by love for him and obedience to him. And the psalmist fell into the trap of a false sense of confidence that overcomes us when things are going well, and he thought he was secure, standing strong in a, in a shifting world. It turns out that he wasn't. And he got sick, and that sickness shattered that peace, shattered the illusion, and brought him back to his knees before God. Facing death, he feared a very real consequence of life away from God. And so he called out, and God drew him back to health, Spiritual health, maybe even physical health, and his renewed awareness of the source of that help, he thought would now stay with him for the rest of his life. And so he determines that he would use the rest of his days to praise his Lord, that it would continue forever. That's a great challenge for us, isn't it? If there is any reason in here why the rest of your days can't be spent serving the Lord? 
staying obedient to him? Why can't this year be the best year of your spiritual growth? Now, I didn't say, why can't this year be the best year you've experienced? This might be the year when lots of calamities happen in your life. This might be a year of trial. But my question remains, why can't this be your best year of spiritual growth? Why, what's stopping you from getting close to the Lord? Well, how is this going to be? I mentioned that Psalm 30 portrays a life-restoring God who takes care of his own. And Christians see this ultimately happening through the resurrection of Christ. And what does it mean that Christ was resurrected? It means that you will be resurrected. Did you know that? I want to ask a couple of questions as we continue on here. What do you think happens when we die? When you die physically, do you just kind of float around? Do you go to some floaty place and kind of float around in a spiritual existence for eternity? You know, funerals are places where you can kind of pick up on what we actually believe about what happens to us when we die. Mostly you'll hear it in the eulogies that are given. And some of them go something like this. Yeah, Uncle Joe is in the casket. Anybody here named Joe? I hope not. Okay. Uncle Joe has died, but Uncle Joe really isn't dead. He's still with us. In fact, he's probably up in the rafters there, kind of looking down on us here. Uncle Joe, is, he's the glimmer on the water when the, it spark, when the sunshine sparkles. He's the sound of the breeze blowing through the trees as the leaves quiver. You know, that, that has almost nothing to do with Christian thinking. That's actually more of a Buddhist approach to things. And you'll hear these at modern evangelical funerals because we have this idea that we're just kind of back into the creation or, or back into this floaty existence. What happens to us when we die? Well, there's a couple problems with the one that I just laid out, this idea of just kind of floating around on clouds and playing harps. A, it sounds not very compelling. It's pretty boring to me. And the second is, it's not the Bible's picture at all. Ultimately, Jesus does not take us up to the sky somewhere in the end, he returns to the earth and he recreates it and he recreates us. A new heaven and a new earth called the new creation. That's really what the book of Revelation is all about, but it's all the way through the New Testament. Just follow with me on, on a couple quick passages as we read through. First of all, look for Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And if you have your Bible or your device or something, just kind of track with me here as best you can. I'm going to go fast. But Romans 8.23 says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That was verse 22, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed. Isn't that amazing to think about? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians has a whole lot to say about resurrection, so we can't do all that. But 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. Uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. There it is. He's saying this physical body will get something that will never die. Verse 54, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's ironic that currently in our modern funerals, even Christian funerals, we try to minimize death. We try to soften it. But if we would understand it for what it is, no, Uncle Joe has really died. He's dead. We can't talk to him anymore. Then we can capture the wonder of resurrection, of the fact that he will one day be re reunited with his body in a new body. Well, let's keep going because I want to get to that in a second. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Colossians 3, verse 1. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We go on and on, verse after verse, throughout the New Testament, talking about the fact that there will be a resurrection. God who raised his man from the pit in Psalm 30, who raised him and restored him to life is the same God who raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead and will ultimately raise all believers to a new, resurrected, physical life in the new creation. Our hope for eternity is grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ. And to experience this new life, one simply needs to repent and believe. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, and believe Jesus is your Savior. So let me ask a couple questions, and I want to just reflect on some of this with you. And hopefully this will give you something to talk about over your afternoon lunch today. Question one, what happens when I die? Well, here's what I believe the New Testament teaches, teaches us when we die. Death is the experience of my spirit being separated from my physical body. And when that happens, my physical body ceases to function. It just shuts down, it's over, it's dead. And so I get placed in the ground. I get buried. And my spirit now is present with the Lord Jesus Christ in what we call heaven. That's not the final destination. That's not the end of the story. So I don't know what's all going on there. I understand that my physical body is decaying in the ground. What's happening with my spirit and this fellowship with the Lord? I'm not exactly sure how long that is in my experience. I'm not sure where that is. It's just not in this physical realm of created earth. It's somewhere else. So my spirit's gone. But one day, as we just read from Scripture, there will be a blast from the heavens, a cry of an angel, and the Lord will return. And then graves will open up. And my body will come up out of that grave, and my spirit will be rejoined to my body. But my body won't be the same old body. I think it'll be recognizable. But it'll be a resurrected body like the one Jesus had after his resurrection. And I think this helps explain to us some of the unique features of Jesus after his resurrection. You know, he was just kind of showing up in rooms, in locked rooms where the door was locked. He was just kind of appearing there. I don't know if we'll have that kind of capability or not. But Jesus' body was different after he was resurrected. In fact, they weren't recognizing him at first. So we will have a body like that 
the Lord will be returning and he will set up a resurrected earth as well. A new heaven and a new earth. We call this the new creation. And that's there that we will enjoy our existence forever on this earth. It won't be quite like this earth. The problems that this earth has will be done. In fact, it'll be a lot like Eden. This will be a return to God's original intention, except Eden was a garden. The new earth, the new creation, is described as a garden city. And so there's a development that has taken place here. Now, the second question I have is, what will the new creation be like? And here we're really speculating. We don't have a whole lot. We know a few things. From the last uh, part of Revelation, we know that there will be no sun because the light of the Lord will light everything up. So I don't know quite how that works. We also understand that there will be no sea. I find that potentially a little disappointment from this side because I love the ocean, but I won't be disappointed. It's all going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. I think that there will be a recognizability. I think that we will know who each other is. From the picture of Revelation, we, get, we understand that the nations will be recognizable and distinct from each other. So I think there's some kind of recognizability that we'll have. And I think the fellowship will be amazing. And I think the adventure will be incredible. Now this is just the, the way my mind works. I think that we're going to be like unto Adam and Eve before the fall, and so we will have work to do in the new creation. And that's part of the wonder of the original creation is that the potential for development was placed in the ground. So if you put a seed in there and watered it and get some sunlight, you could grow a tree. That was part of the marvel of the original creation. And I, I kind of think that that kind of thing will be in place. I think there will be architecture and building and gardening and art and music. I think these things will be there for us to explore and to enjoy and to carry out. All with great joy. We won't do work as sweating from our brow as though it was a curse. We will do work as unto the Lord and it will be marvelous. I'm a very amateur photography and so I, I speculate, well, what will photography be like in the new creation? I don't know. Will it be super easy to do something marvelous, or will there be a certain kind of challenge artistically to it? I'm not sure. I had a conversation a few years ago at a youth camp. There was a young lady on staff there who had no arm below her elbow. She was born that way. So she had no left hand. And we were just together. We had a, an extended conversation for about an hour one day during a, a free time. And we got to talking about her experience of life, being born without this hand, and then growing up an adult. This was a, a teen adventure camp where they're doing backpacking and rock climbing and canoeing and all this kind of stuff, and she's there participating. So we talked about that whole thing of her overcoming this challenge and leading a very active outdoor life. And then our conversation drifted to this whole topic of the new creation. And so I don't know if this was strange for me to ask her, but I asked her, I said, what do you think about your body in the new creation? Will you have a left hand in your recreated body? And she didn't know. Of course she doesn't know. But I said, well, what do you think? And she said, well, I kind of hope not. I said, really? She said, yeah, I, I wouldn't expect it. I mean, this is, this is all I've ever known, and it's part of what made me who I am. And so I just kind of think this is what I'll be like in the new creation. Now, I don't think there's a whole lot for you, though. That's just, I just find that kind of fascinating to talk about. I don't know if that gives you any hope. That's the whole point of this message, is to drive us towards hope. But I'm just 
speculating about the wonder and the reality of our future physical existence in a recreated body on a recreated earth. This is the forcefulness of the Bible's teaching. And we'll be there in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of each other. And it will all be about bringing great glory to him. I think Ken made reference in a prayer or earlier comment that even this moment here for us today is not about us getting something that we want. It's about us praising our Lord. But the amazing thing is that when we praise our Lord, we will have the most marvelous time ever. So here is the arc of cosmic history. You have creation, the fall, then redemption offered in Christ, which opens the possibility, not the possibility, but, but the certainty of a new creation that we can enjoy together. And that was all made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I come back to it. So how will you participate in this new creation, in this new marvelous eternity? Well, we live in a broken world, and we are broken ourselves. I think we all kind of know that. Part of our brokenness is pride, which gets in the way of us understanding our brokenness. But deep down inside, I think we understand that we're broken. And the only way to find healing, the only way to find complete restoration is in repentance and belief. You're going to turn away from your sins. That's repentance. Turning away from sinfulness and turning to something marvelous, to something wonderful, which is the forgiveness of Christ. Trusting him to be your Lord. Trusting him to take care of you. Trusting him to save you. And then we go forward and we live. We live in obedience to him. Let's go back to Psalm 30 for a second. With these things in mind, hear these words again. This marvelous prayer. Psalms are great because they're perfect, inerrant prayers from the voice of God that we can put into our voice and praise back to him and pray back to him. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountains stand strong. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down into the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise. And be not silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen.